read through Leviticus 18 a couple times as a church, and so I want us to look at Ephesians 4 and read some verses from Ephesians 4, kind of right in line with what Miley and Kurt just sang. And so if you're able to, if you would stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. Paul says, Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is, in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word. This morning, and Heavenly Father, we do ask, by your grace, you'd help us live according to the the new self, who we are in your Son, Jesus, and give us joy as we do so and as we encourage one another to do so as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, my dad had a, a saying, the boy who says he can and the boy who says he can't are usually both right. You guys ever have dads who said sayings kind of like that? The boy who says he can and the boy who says he can't are usually both right. And this was a saying that my dad would often give, this little gem of wisdom, often at times when I was, was arguing with him about how something that he had just told me to do wasn't very feasible. So he'd say, Daniel, this is what I want you to do. And I would begin uh, using my my vast rhetorical skills to convince my father of the intellectual deficiencies of his position. And he would say, look, Daniel, the boy who says he can and the boy who says he can't are usually both right. So I didn't really appreciate the saying as a, a young person, um, but that hasn't stopped me using it as a father, because now that I'm a father, I understand the wisdom of this, of this parable, of, the, of this gem, because whenever my children are, are arguing with me about, you know, this is what I want you to do, well, Dad, look, hey, I don't, I don't, I don't want to hear about how it can't be done. What I want to hear are, are words of, of affirmation, yes, Father, I will strive to see your will completed. That's, that's what you long to hear from your children, Right? Nah, I see some parents laughing. It is funny. It's, it gets, though, to the idea of, of, of plausibility. When we're talking about obedience, sometimes what keeps us from being obedient is we don't believe that the instruction is, is plausible. We don't think there's a realistic expectation that we can be obedient in that area. And that's certainly true when we come to this area of obedience when it comes to, to sexuality. Both our, our flesh and the culture argue against the, the realistic possibility of being able to be obedient to God in the areas that he's called us to be obedient to him in. So, for example, 
Scripture tells a young person or a single person, look, this is how you're to, to live your life in obedience to God. This is what, it, what celibacy looks like. This is what it looks like to pursue holiness before God. And, and our, our flesh and the culture kind of react against that. So that, that doesn't seem realistic. That doesn't seem plausible. God's Word has instructions for those of us who are married. God's Word says, look, those of you who are married, this is what it looks like to live in covenant faithfulness to one another. This is what it means to live in covenant faithfulness year after year, decade after decade. This is what it looks like to engage in sacrificial love. This is what it looks like to to be involved in covenant faithfulness. And our flesh and the culture both kind of speak against that. Look, look what, what God's Word doesn't, says doesn't seem realistic. It doesn't seem realistic, especially in the times where things are bad or where things seem bad in the valleys. God's Word doesn't seem realistic then. It doesn't seem plausible. Obedience doesn't seem plausible. And to the person who struggles with, for example, same-sex attraction, something we're going to be discussing this morning, God's Word says, look, this, this is what it looks like to live in obedience to me in this struggle. And our flesh, for some of us, the, the culture says, look, that's not realistic. That's not plausible. And so what I want to do this morning as we continue to make our way through Leviticus is I want God's instructions to us here to to not only seem plausible, for us not only to understand that it's it's realistic to expect obedience in these areas, I want obedience to God not only to seem plausible, but desirable. I want us to, to see what God's Word says about sexuality and about obedience to Him, and I want us to say, Yes, not only is this plausible, not only is it plausible that I can be obedient to this, but it's desirable. This is, this is what I want to do. Remember, we're in Leviticus. We've been talking about holiness and the, the people, the Israelites in the book of Leviticus, they are living in proximity to a holy God. And the question of Leviticus is how can people live in close proximity to God and not be consumed by his holiness? And as we think about that reality, we're, we're thinking through, okay, what does it look like to live in holiness before God? We see that we have the ability to live in proximity to a holy God by his grace. He allows us, by his grace, to live in relationship with him. We've, we've defined holiness as being devoted to God. And so as I'm devoted to God, I, I separate my, my, myself from sin by his grace, and I, I pursue him. I'm devoted to him. If we want to know how holy we are, the answer is, well, the degree to which I'm devoted to God. We've seen we can't be devoted to God in our own strength. We, are, we receive holiness by the grace of God as we place our faith in his son, Jesus. And we've looked at several principles related to holiness in the area of sexuality as we've gone through this chapter and some other parts of Leviticus and uh, the Pentateuch. And we came to a fifth principle, and we're, gonna, we're just kind of slowing down and, and talking about this fifth principle. The fifth principle we saw as we've been going through some of these principles, we saw that sexual partners for the marriage relationship are limited by God and his holiness. That was one of the principles we looked at a few, uh, last week. 
And as we looked at that principle, we, we looked at verses, in fact, turn back to Leviticus 18 with me if you would. We saw that God has said, look, not only is it true, and remember we saw that the foundation for sexual ethics in the Pentateuch is in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, this one man coming into a covenant relationship with one woman. We saw that's that's the, the foundation for ethics in this area of life. That's the picture that God has given us that helps us understand his relationship with his people, this one flesh relationship, one man, one woman coming together, covenant faithfulness. That's that's what God has called us to. And we, we saw that that's, that's kind of the foundational relationship. And we saw that there are, there are deviations from the relationship that are forbidden. In other words, we can't say, okay, uh, God wants me to practice sexuality within the context of marriage, and so therefore I'll, I'll marry someone. That's, well, that's, that's true, but you can't just marry anyone. And so in these verses, we see that incest is prohibited, adultery is prohibited, polygamy, uh, homosexuality, and bestiality are all things that are prohibited in these verses. And what I want us to do, and I mentioned this last week, is I want us to, to slow down here. And as we come to verse 22, we see a, a specific limitation placed upon the Israelites Verse 22 says, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. And so based upon where we are in our culture here in the year 2017, I think we need to talk about what this means, what this prohibition looks like for us. Because this is something, we have to do this because our culture is, is demanding that we speak about this. Even those in our culture who, who disagree with us on this issue are kind of demanding that we give some sort of response. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe that? There's, it's, a challenging, it's a challenge, but it's, it's a, a demand for response. And I think we owe it to people we love to, to respond to that, to be honest about what we believe Scripture teaches. I think it's important for, for uh, people in our church who we love to understand what Scripture teaches concerning these things. And so, hopefully, as we talk through this issue, we do so in a very gentle way, we do so in a very loving way, and yet we do so in a, a clear way as well. And I believe that actually, even though we're going through a, a revolution as a culture, this is, this is something that God in His grace is allowing the church to, to think through to help us understand how to be more obedient to God in this area. So here's what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about changing the way we respond to same-sex attraction in the church. And when I, when I say changing, I don't mean the sense of changing what we believe about the rightness or wrongness of, of acting upon this desire, but thinking through biblically, how can we improve as we speak truth to our culture and to those we love? And I want to give us kind of three ways that we can respond, change perhaps the way we respond to same-sex attraction in the church. And here's, here's the first way. Number one, we need to acknowledge the reality that Christians struggle with same-sex attraction. And, and I would say we've, we've failed in this in some very significant ways. Uh, oftentimes, as I think about how the church has spoken about this, especially when I was growing up, it was very much, look, if, if you're a Christian 
uh, you just need to, to realize that this is a, a wrong desire. And that was kind of all that was said on the issue. It wasn't really acknowledging the reality of what some of our, our brothers and sisters were telling us. And so one of the first things that I think we need to do is acknowledge this reality. Look, there are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Here's how uh, Kevin DeYoung puts it in his book, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? He says, uh, as one friend of mine who experienced the same-sex attraction put it, same-sex attraction used here to mean more than simply men desiring the company of other men or women of women. Same-sex attraction did not exist before the fall, comes as a result of it, and will not exist when the fall has finally been overcome. Desires are deemed good or bad, not just by their intensity, but based upon their object. In other words, a desire isn't good or bad just based upon how much you feel it, but a desire is good or bad based upon its object. And so we would say, look, along with our brothers and sisters who struggle with same-sex attraction, we would say, this, this desire is a result of the fall. It didn't exist before the fall, and it will not exist when the fall's effects have been reversed. But we have to say more than that, right? In other words, if we, if we just say that to a brother and sister who comes to us, a young, this has happened before, a young man uh, comes and says, look, a, a pastor, I want to be obedient to God, and, and yet this, this is what I'm struggling with. What does this mean? You don't just say, look, that's a bad desire, stop it. You say, let's, let's think through that. Let's think through what, what's causing that, what, what God's word says. And, and even in the midst of that temptation, how should you respond? Here's what Kevin DeYoung goes on to say. He says, if we stop here, we will crush the spirits, or worse, of brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction, and listen to what he says, through no conscious choice of their own. And I think that's a, an important point to make. Every Christian wrestles with thoughts we can't quite understand and feelings we never wanted. This is not, Kevin DeYoung goes on to say, a homosexual problem. It's a human problem. Then he goes on, for the, for the honest struggler, we want to emphasize that the desires can arise in us unbidden, and finding yourself attracted to, the per, to persons of the same sex does not destine you for a lifetime of guilt and self-loathing. That's, a, that's a, an important point for us to communicate to people we love. When we use this phrase, same-sex attraction, what we're saying is, is perhaps recognizing we haven't done a good job recognizing the past. There are going to be brothers and sisters who have a, a temptation in an area and, and need the church to love them in that temptation. There are going to be brothers and sisters who come to us and say, look, this is a desire I have. And, and I recognize that there is a, a temptation to act upon this desire. And so when we, we use this phrase, we're talking about brothers and sisters who are going to struggle with this. And then, and then again, this is based upon the experiences of other people. And I think it's hard for us to, to put ourselves in the experiences of other people. So, but based on what others have, have told me, for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ, they're going to say, you know what? Um, Five years ago, I struck, this is a temptation in my life. I could feel the pull of that. Today, I, I remember that, but I, I just don't, I don't feel that anymore. It's, it's not a reality in my life anymore. But for others, they're, they're going to come and say, you know what? I, I struggled with this five years ago from the very first 
moment of, of, of conscious awareness of attraction. I, I struggled with this. I, it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm struggling with it today. I anticipate that I'll be struggling with it five, 10, 15 years in the future. That's going to be a reality that some people in the church face, and we need to listen to them. We need to hear what they're telling us. What we want people to be able to say, though, be it in this issue or any issue regarding to sexuality, we want us all to come to the point where we say, look, I, I don't have a desire to act on that ultimately because Jesus is more precious to me than anything else. And this is a huge challenge that we face here in the year 2017 because, as I, I mentioned last week, we have undergone an incredible revolution not just a moral shift, but a moral revolution. A few years ago, a decade, 15 years ago, there was almost near universal recognition in the church that, that Scripture condemned homosexuality. That's not the case today. In fact, there has been a reversal, at least in terms of, of some branches of Christianity. So again, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, Christianity would say, look, the Bible condemns homosexuality. Today, not just is there a refusal to say this, but, but some would even say that, that saying that homosexuality is wrong, is, is, is sinful, is, is wrong, is harmful. The New York Times ran an article describing suicides of several teens who were living a, a homosexual lifestyle. And then began quoting people who, who lay the blame of this at, at the feet of the church. Very, very sobering story. And it quotes one person saying, look, anti-gay bullying is a, a theological issue. When the church has these conceptions of good and evil and hierarchical notions of values and worth, it becomes easy to know who it is okay to hate or bully or seemingly more benignly to ignore then this person goes on to say, and no institutions have done more to create and perpetuate the public disapproval of gay and lesbian people than churches. Do you, do you catch the impact of what's, what's happened? Now this person is saying, a, a church proclaiming the, the reality of good and evil and saying that some practices are good in, in sexuality and some practices are evil, or, or saying that that this is a wrong type of lifestyle. It's, it's perpetuating public disapproval, and that's, that's a wrong thing. It's leading to, to people committing suicide. And the person who said this is a pastor, right? That's not just a shift, that's a revolution. We need to acknowledge the reality that Christians struggle with same-sex attraction, and, and we need to listen very carefully uh, to peop what people we love are saying, and even people who are ups upset at the church's teaching. We, we need to listen very carefully to what they're saying. We need to acknowledge the reality that it's possible to be a believer and struggle with this. Now, how do we respond? What's the second thing? Here's the second thing I would encourage us with. I would encourage us to continue to hold fast to God's word. And again, as I think about how this issue has, has changed in our culture in the last five years, 
This, is, this has been a, a huge shift, even in the evangelical church. Before the 1990s, there was no, there, there were no voices of which I'm aware that were saying, look, the Bible isn't really clear in, in what it says about homosexuality. Now, there may have been some people who said what the Bible says about homosexuality isn't right, it's mean, it's oppressive, but there was no one who, who doubted what it said. Within the last five years, and, and this is just astonishing to me, uh, people who are part of the evangelical community have begun, have begun to say, you know what, I'm not sure what the Bible says about this. Maybe the Bible, maybe the Bible isn't really all that uh, condemning of homosexuality. Now, this is a, it's, it's, it's a very strange thing. People that I, I went to seminary with, friends that I had in seminary, have begun to, to question some of these things. And, and I think we have to ask ourselves, what is it that they're saying? What are the attacks on what God's Word says? And, and, and how, how do we respond to those? What, what, what's causing those and how do we respond? Let me give you just a couple examples of, of what people are saying in an attempt to undermine biblical teaching. And again, some of these are taken from Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Uh, Some people have said, well, you know what? The more we read the Bible, the more we realize the Bible doesn't really talk about homosexuality that much. And some people have said, in fact, when it does talk about homosexuality, it's not talking about homosexuality as we understand it today. So, for example, in Leviticus, when it it condemns homosexuality, it's talking about um, cult religious practices, and that's what the Bible is condemning. Or in Paul's day, whenever Paul condemns homosexuality, he's not condemning uh, loving homosexual relationships that we see today, the the marriage-type relationships we see today. And instead, he is condemning uh, pedophilia, or he is condemning people acting out in kind of these... these, these sexually immoral practices. He's not condemning homosexuality as we're trying to, to see it expressed today. Now, what's, what's the problem with that? Well, the, the problem with that is, is several things. One, it's, it's a very new position. No one has ever seen that before as they've approached Scripture. Again, as I mentioned, before the 1990s, this, this idea never occurred that the Bible wasn't universal in its condemnation of homosexuality. And I think you have to ask yourself, okay, well, what, what prompts that? Well, it's obviously... I would argue, a bias. There's a a desire, sometimes a a well-intentioned desire, to expand what Scripture teaches, and so it it affects this this hermeneutical process, but it's certainly not what we see in Scripture. Here's another thing that, that I think is important for us to realize. The Bible is very clear in both what it affirms and what it condemns. It's very clear and it's very broad. So throughout Scripture, from beginning to end, in terms of what Scripture affirms regarding where it is appropriate to practice our sexuality, there's one clear message. The only relationship that is ever explicitly affirmed in Scripture is a a one-man, one-woman covenant faithful relationship. That is the only type of relationship that is ever commended in Scripture. It's the only type of relationship that is ever put forth as what God desires. And and what we see regarding homosexuality, just as a specific example, is, is universal condemnation. 
There is never any hint that this is, this is appropriate. In fact, those who would argue against the biblical understanding of homosexual practice would talk about passages in Scripture that they call um, clobber, pra- uh, clobber passages. These are passages they say we, we clobber uh, people with. And I think, well, the reason that they're so so effective is because they are so strong. I mean, the texts are very, very clear. Genesis one twenty seven: God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Leviticus 20, 13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. And so some may say, well, that's, that's talking about these pagan practices. Well, perhaps that's the reason this instruction was made so explicit. And yet there's a, a, a broad condemnation of which cult practices may be a subset. Romans 1, 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves a due penalty for their error. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that their unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. 1 Timothy 1.10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, again, some people will argue, well, perhaps... Perhaps Paul or Moses are describing these specific instances, and yet what do we see? We see there is a clear, a clear picture of what sexual relationships are supposed to look like. And the only picture that God ever affirms is a one man, one woman relationship, and all other relationships, whenever they come up in Scripture, are condemned, either implicitly or explicitly. So, Regarding the issue of homosexuality, a person say, well, okay, God was, was against this type of homosexuality, but we're describing this type of homosexuality where there's this, this committed relationship. And, and what do we say? Well, we say, look, the, the condemnation was broad. It's this, this broad umbrella. And we can't expect every deviation from God's standard to be explicitly condemned. It's like this. When my, my children are... Uh, in need of, of some, some correction. I might say in my, in my very loving, fatherly voice, I might say, hey, uh, children whom I love, um, I want you to clean your room. In, in fact, I want cleaning your room to be the next thing that you do. As you think about all the things that you can do in life, I want the next thing you do to, be, to clean your room. I don't want you to play a video game. I don't want you to watch a movie. I, I don't want you to go play outside. I want you to clean your room. Then I walk away, and I come back, and there are these, these precious children whom God has entrusted to me, reading a book, surrounded by piles of clothing. And I say, oh, dear children, um, what has happened? Did I not tell you? <laughs> Did I not say unto thee, uh, clean your room? Dad, you said you didn't want us to watch TV. We are reading a book. This is educational. You didn't say don't read a book. Well, hold on, hold on. I think I was pretty clear in, in the picture that I was envisioning for your life. This is a deviation from that. Or think about the area of theft. 
You know, the command, the Scripture says, don't steal. And a person may say, okay, well, that was, you know, that was Old Testament. Yeah, it's, it's repeated in the New Testament. Paul mentions that. But, but Paul and Moses, they didn't understand living in the, the complex culture that we do today. And yeah, it would probably be wrong for me to break into your house and steal things. But, but if I'm working for a Fortune 500 company, this is some anonymous giant corporation. It's okay for me to, to misuse funds and that. It's okay for me to, to steal things from the corporation because God never envisioned a situation in which I'd be working for some, some big, greedy, yellow company, right? God never envisioned that. No, no, no. There's, there's a universal, broad condemnation and, and all deviations from that are, are sinful. And the same is true when it comes to this issue of homosexuality. When we say, well, the Bible doesn't speak about homosexuality that much, or it's not condemning this particular kind of homosexuality, that's, that's not an appropriate response because Scripture is so clear regarding what God desires. What he doesn't desire is a blanket condemnation, never affirmation. There's other arguments that, that people make to undermine the teaching of Scripture that I think tempt us to not hold fast to what God's Word says. One person recently even mentioned this to me. Look, your teaching is, is harming people. It's, it's driving them to suicide. The suicide rate among teens who struggle with same-sex attraction is, is eight times higher, than the, or four times higher than uh, the average teen and eight times higher in, in homes where they're not, uh, where they're rejected. And I'm not sure exactly what that statistics means by rejected, but it's, it's something that we're told by our culture. The church, we're told, is supposed to be a place for broken people. And we're told that we're on the wrong side of history. We're, we're told that it's not fair to ask people to do something that you don't ask heterosexual people to, be, to, to do. We're told that the God... Uh, scripture is a God of love, and what we're doing is not loving. Now, brothers and sisters, I, I would say, look, this, some of these things, when people say those things, it's, it's hard. And it's hard to respond in the right way. Sometimes our temptation is to argue back. So a person says that statistic about suicide, and you, you feel attacked. You say, and you just begin to say, no, 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 you're wrong because here's what God's Word says. And we're not really listening to what the person is saying. What the person is saying is, look, there are, there are hurting young people, and, and some of them are hurting so profoundly that they're taking their own lives. That should cause us to pause. And whenever our first response to a, to a sobering statistic like that is to begin an argument, it means we're not listening rightly. Here's what Ed Shaw says. Again, Ed Shaw wrote the book, Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, and he would identify as, as someone who's, who wrestles with that in his life. He talks about the changing environment in which he lives, an environment in which the church is beginning to affirm same-sex relationships. And he says, look, I know that's wrong. And then he says this. This is, this is so important for us to hear. He says, the environment in which I'm trying to be faithful to the church's traditional teaching is much harsher now than it ever was before. And that makes my life even harder than it was before. Think for a moment of your greatest besetting sin. The thing God asks you not to think or do, but you keep on thinking or doing. And so, for example, maybe for some of us, we struggle to control our temper 
Or maybe others of us are, are struggle, struggle in, our, in our faithfulness to our, our spouse. He says, now, imagine whatever that, that, that greatest besetting sin that you have is, and consider how much your efforts to say no to it would be undermined if suddenly you were told it wasn't wrong anymore, or at the very least, if a few voices started to raise doubts in your mind. When next tempted, things would be much more challenging, wouldn't they? Why resist thinking or doing that if it really isn't a sin anymore? If Jesus didn't mind, if Jesus would actually approve, then so put yourself in Ed Shaw's position. What if someone told you, look, I know you struggle with anger. I know you've been wrestling with this for, for 20 years, and you've had periods of victory, and you've had periods where you failed. You know what? We've, we've read the text wrong. God's okay with it. How much more difficult is it going to be for you in that next time of temptation to be obedient to God if people are telling you, look, this, this isn't even really a sin. Jesus is, is okay with this. And Ed Shaw writes, welcome to one of the fiercest challenges of my life. Go back just a decade and I had almost unanimous support from within the evangelical community for the life I'm living. He says, now he doesn't have that support. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to continue to hold fast to God's word in a culture that is rapidly changing. And we need to hold fast, not just so we can be right. We need to hold fast, not because we're going to win some popularity contest, because I guarantee you we are not. We need to hold fast to what God's word says regarding sexuality because we love the Ed Shaws in our, in our congregation. And we need the Ed Shaws to love us and to challenge us in areas in which we need to change. And so it's not because we want to condemn people, but because we love them, because we love these precious ones, we want to give them hope. We want to, them to see the beauty and the plausibility of the Christian life, the life lived in obedience to God and that's why we hold fast to God's word. Now, here's the third thing for us to think about this morning. Think of, as we think about changing the ways that we respond to same-sex attraction in the church. Number, number three, we need to do a better job of this. We need to bear one another's burdens as we pursue our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to bear one another's burdens as we pursue our Lord Jesus Christ. Ed Shaw, again in his book, Same-Sex Attraction in the Church, he identifies several missteps he thinks the church has made as it speaks to this issue. And I want to go through these, these missteps with you. These are things that he thinks that we've, we've done wrongly that doesn't allow the life that God has called someone like Ed to live seem plausible. Here's, here's the first step, misstep that he identifies. We as a church have said your identity is, is your sexuality. We've said that. We've said your identity is your sexuality. In other words, you are homosexual or you are heterosexual. We've said that, 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 is, that is how we define you. But Kevin DeYoung, again, uh, I think Shaw quotes DeYoung saying this. He says, if I had to summarize New Testament ethics in one sentence, here's how I would put it. Be who you are. Be who you are in Christ, right? We read Ephesians chapter 4 earlier, but the, the beginning of Ephesians 4 says, look, 
um, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And then he goes into the verses 17 through 24. He says, don't live like who you used to live. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. And it's corrupt through deceitful desires. So this is your old self. This is who you used to be. And your old self has these desires. And how does he describe these desires as, as deceitful? They're, they're desires that are going to cause you to believe that joy is going to be found on paths which, which God's word says it's not going to be found on. It says, put those things off and instead put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We've talked about 1 Corinthians 6 before. It talks about various sexual sins and other types of sins. And it says in verse 11, this is who you used to be, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And as Miley and Kurt saying earlier, who are we? We're a child of God. You and I are children of God. Another misstep that we've made, he would say, is we've, we've said that a family is mom, dad, and, and 2.4 children. Shaw says that's, that's a misstep. We're a church that loves marriage, and we are a church that loves children. And so we rightly talk about marriage. We rightly talk about children. We're, we're for both of those things, right? And yet, and, and we've mentioned this before, there is a, a real danger that we make an idol out of the, the nuclear family. We say, look, the, the highest uh, possible existence that a person can have is to be a, a husband or wife and, and to have 2.4 children. I recommend four, by the way. That's kind of the ideal, but no, it's not, right? That's the point. And whenever we say that this, this family unit is, is so important uh, that sometimes we say this family is so important that it causes us to uh, neglect the other relationships that God has called us to, to be a part of. In other words, God has called us sovereignly not to be only a part of whatever family that he's created for you to, to be in, whether it be as a single person, whether it be as a married couple with no children or one children or one child, two child, whatever it is. God has called us not only to be in that relationship, but also to be in the relationship of, of the family of God. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is told that his mother and brothers want to, to speak to him. And he, he looks around and he says, look, who, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? He looks toward his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And what I would say to you, my brothers and sisters, is that God has called us not only to be a part of whatever nuclear family that we're a part of, but he's, he's called us to invest relationally as a family in one another. And when we fail to do so, when we, when we make such an idol out of our, our nuclear family that we're not engaged in the lives of other people, we, we're sinning against particularly our, our, our single members. I was recently talking with a person. They were talking about how much this is a person who goes to a different church. Uh, um, and they, they were saying, you know what, I, I, love my, I love my small group because it's made up of people just like me, right? They're people who have... 
spouse and the same number of kids I do, and the kids are my, the same age as, as my kids. We fail, we fail the people in our churches who are struggling with other issues, and we fail ourselves when we, when we communicate that a family is only a mom and dad and, and kids. Another misstep that he identifies that we make is, is this. We say that a natural instinct to do something means it's okay to do it. We've, we sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly teach this. For example, many people would say, look, homosexuality is, is okay because it's, it's natural. It means it's okay to do it. The geneticist uh, Andrew Rutherford was asked by a, a gay journalist about the so-called gay gene. And he says, look, I, I feel I can give you an unequivocal answer to that question, which also applies to the biology of almost any complex trait, which is there, there isn't a gay gene. Now, let's say that there is, though. Let, let's concede the point. And, and perhaps there is, perhaps there, maybe there's an, an individual gene, but perhaps there's a genetic predisposition uh, to this type of temptation, to this behavior. What, what do we say in that instance. What do we say? I think what we say is that we are, we are not uh, victims of, of biological predeterminism. The psalmist describes this reality in, in perfect truth. He says in Psalm 51 verse 5, look, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, sin has, has always been a part of my, my makeup. And, and what is our hope? Verse 6, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And God, you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And so whatever temptations, whatever desires I have in, in the innermost being of who I am, the, the beauty of, of coming to God is this belief that in his grace he can work with us and he can change us by, by radical heart transformation. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the, joins, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. A misstep that we have made as a culture is we've said, look, if, if you have a natural instinct to do something, it means it's okay to do it. The testimony of Scripture goes against that wrong understanding. I think Ed Shaw is right here. Another misstep related to this, if, if it makes you happy, it, it must be right. If it makes you happy, it, it must be right. In other words, sometimes we, we feel, okay, if, if I give in to this desire, there's, there's going to be joy here. It's true that for a short period of time, there, there may be an experience of, of pleasure, but that doesn't mean that long-term, that's, that's where joy is going to be found. Yesterday, uh, Ben Davidson, our associate pastor, put on this, this event called the Donut Run. And he is currently suffering the consequences of that, I hope, because I certainly am. The, the Donut Run was this, this torturous one-and-a-half-mile race where you, you ran a quarter of a mile, and then you ate a donut, and then you ran another quarter of a mile, and you ate a donut, and then you, <laughs> and then you ran another quarter of a mile, and you eat a donut. Now, I love donuts. I mean, I love donuts. Amen. Yes, thank you. Um, <laughs> On donut number five, the, the joy that I was experiencing from donut number one was no longer, ple- no longer present. There was just a certain dread and lack of joy with each bite. 
I was, told, I was told, I wasn't there, but my, two of my kids ran it as well. And I was told that my daughter looked at my son as she was eating the donut and she said, the only reason I'm eating this is to beat you. And, uh, you know, and she loves donuts, right? My kids have this other game they play called, I think it's called, um, uh, like knock, knock out or something or slap you. I mean, basically they just kind of, they're hitting each other and they're laughing and I'm telling them, guys, I don't think you're going to enjoy this game in about five minutes. No, we love it. We're going to love it forever. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, they're fighting in tears, right? It seemed like a good idea. It seemed like it was going to bring joy, but it didn't surprisingly. Just because something seems pleasurable and like it's going to bring joy doesn't mean that it actually is long-term The psalmist, again, Psalm 19, tells us that the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. And what do we want to do? We want people to see, look, God's word is good. And we want them not only to get to the point where they say obedience to God's word is is plausible. We want to get them to that point and beyond where they say it's desirable. It's more to be desired than anything else. Another thing, another misstep we make is to say that physical intimacy is where true intimacy, true intimacy is found. That's a hard thing for a person who might be called to a life of, of celibacy uh, to tell them that, look, um, this is what God may have in store for you. It's a hard thing for a person if, if we tell them at the same time, but the only place we will find intimacy is in physical intimacy that's, that's not a, an encouraging word or true word. Another misstep we make is to say that men and women are equal and interchangeable. Now, it's certainly true, of course, that men and women are equal, but to say that the gender roles are, are simply interchangeable, we're going to come back to that, but that's a, a misstep, something we've communicated that doesn't help brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling in this area. Another way we misstep is to say that heterosexuality is the same as godliness. Now, I want you to think about this really carefully. This is, this is a, a problem that we have. We assume sometimes that heterosexuality is the same as godliness. In other words, we say, okay, this person is, is struggling with, with homosexuality. They're struggling with same-sex attraction. All we need to do is get them to be attracted to people of the opposite gender, and then they'll be holy. That is a very wrong message to convey. Because heterosexuality is not intrinsically holy in terms of how it plays out oftentimes in our lives, right? There are many sins that the heterosexual struggles with, and simply turning lust from from one object to another does not create holiness. Think about this. We should be far more concerned that our children love Jesus than we are whether or not they, they struggle with same-sex attraction. We should be far more concerned, let me say that again, that our children love Jesus than that they never struggle with same-sex attraction. For some people, same-sex attraction has been a battle that has resulted in them loving God more. Through pain, through self-denial, they've learned to love God more. And by the way, those who don't struggle with same-sex attraction, their faithfulness to God in that area 
should compel and motivate you to holiness as well. Another misstep that we've made is to say that celibacy is bad for you. To say that celibacy is bad for you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 8, it's good for the unmarried and widows to remain single as I am. Jesus would say this in Matthew 19. He would say there, there are those who have been eunuchs from birth, those who are eunuchs who've been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. One author, Shaw quotes, who struggles with same-sex attraction, says, celibacy for the kingdom, celibacy for the kingdom is not a declaration that sex is bad. It's a declaration that there's something even better, infinitely better. Listen to this and, and celebrate it. Christian celibacy is a bold declaration that heaven is real and it is worth selling everything to possess. And then finally, a misstep we make is that suffering is to be avoided. Suffering is to be avoided. Jesus would say, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain, what, for what can a man give in return for his soul? And here is how we solve the problem of plausibility. It's here that we solve the, the problem of plausibility for the person who struggles with same-sex attraction. It is here that we solve the problem of plausibility for the married couple. It is here that we solve the problem of plausibility for the single person who struggles in their sexual purity. We say, look, suffering is not something to be avoided. It is something to be embraced. Because the value of possessing Jesus Christ is far greater than the value of obtaining anything else. Obedience to God is not only plausible, it's desirable because we love Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life we have in his name. Change us, Father, make us like you. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.